This summer, as is part of our uh, rhythm of life here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, we're in, we've just started a topical series. The purpose, the reason for a topical series is that uh, with everybody coming and going, the idea is to have a, um, a series that ties loosely together while each week allows, us, allows it to stand on its own. In the fall, for those of you who have not who are not with us regularly, in the fall, uh, we have a series in the Old Testament. We're currently in Isaiah, and in the winter spring, we have a series in the New Testament. We're currently in Matthew. Through the summer, our series this year is on the church. And the reason is on the church is because it's easy for us to forget what the church is about. It's easy for us to believe, um, tuned as we are to the lies of our culture, that the church is all about us, about our comfort and our glory, when in fact the church is all about the display of God's glory, God's great love, God's great power, as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. It's helpful for us to remember that the local church exists to change us, to transfer us, as it were, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, to make us a new kind of people, a people not of darkness, but a people of his marvelous light, is what Scripture calls making disciples. The church, the local church, exists to make disciples. That is, men, women, and children whose affections and thoughts and words and deeds are being changed. What Roman, the language that Romans uses is being transformed in order that they may harmonize to the affections and thoughts and words and deeds of Jesus. And so it is that Paul exhorts the churches, the church in Colossae, to have their eyes fixed on Jesus so that affections and thoughts and words and deeds may be harmonized to him. We believe here that this work of making disciples is a work of the Spirit by the word that takes place primarily in the context of our worship and our fellowship and our sacrificial service together. And we believe that it is the word, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the power by which God does this. What's important for the series is if we do not believe and sense ourselves as individuals or as a body in our life together, the discomfort that is necessarily and unavoidably involved in having our affections changed then it is likely because we are not resting in the power of God, that is, the gospel, or, at the very least, we find ourselves resisting that power of God working in us by the Spirit through the Word. Today, we'll be looking at the church as an enduring place, because the church is the, and the local church is an embassy of an enduring kingdom and a superior king, the church will endure. 
And because the king and the kingdom and the king's church will endure, we too can endure life as a fallen people in a fallen world because we are being made alive by the king himself. To get at that, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be focusing on verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12. But in order to put that in context, I want to back up and have us start reading at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. Read with me the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us, his people, for which we give thanks. And to which we ask the Spirit now to grant us courage to hear it. So let's pray. So Father, we do come. And we do pray that by the powerful working of your spirit, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, you would meet with us in this place at this time as we come to this portion of this hour, to this your word. Grant us humility. Grant us peace. Grant us a quiet of heart and mind. And then grant us courage that we may hear you speak. We recognize, O Father, that the word of your grace, that the word of your love, that the word of your holiness can be a terrifying thing. And so lash us, Father, to the mass of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may have strength 
to endure that word, to rejoice in that word, and to walk in obedience to that word. For we pray it as your children, in his name, amen. There is a reality TV show that is out there somewhere. It's been going for several seasons, and it is not on one of the main networks, but it's on the National Geographic Network, and it's called Doomsday Preppers. I suspect that there may be one or two, even in this congregation, that counted among their favorites. Because there may be one or two in this congregation, or perhaps you have a friend, who is actually trying to figure out how to build a shelter and how to stock it because doomsday is fast approaching. We do live in Flintstone after all. That's one of those great jokes that once you make it, you wonder why people are laughing and you think, <laughs> there's an interesting conversation there. Doomsday Preppers is a series in which they actually profile people who are prepping for doomsday. These are people who have considered the evidence. They're not dumb people. They've considered the evidence. They, they see real things. They see real dangers on the horizon. They see real threats. Some of them describe the, fret, the threats primarily as financial. Looming financial collapse is just around the corner. Others see military invasion, the, one that I, one, the ones that I scanned very briefly, um, and fully expects either Russia, which is going for land grabs now in Europe as they're trying to rebuild their empire, or China will invade. Or some are saying it's political chaos. Some are declaring that racial wars are just on the horizon some are talking about an electromagnetic pulse that will just shut down the grid. Sorry. Others are talking about infrastructure collapse. There are as many doomsday scenarios as there are doomsday preppers, which makes for a great TV series. And the question is, how are they responding to all these very real threats that they see? Because as they look, as they read the, the, the papers, as they watch the news, as they, as they take stock of what is happening, there is a major shakeup coming. The world as we know it is going to be changed. And it will be destroyed. Are you ready? A doomsday prepper who is near and dear to my heart, who I have had the opportunity to listen to with bemused look on my face, said, You think I'm joking? You think I'm joking? I've got all this food. I've got this gas. But you're laughing now, but you won't be laughing then, and you're not getting any. Praise the Lord, he says. And so the response is to lay hold of the best wisdom and the best strategy, the best skills that the world has to offer. 
depending on their various assessments of the danger. It's reasonable. It's a reasonable response, given what they see happening in the world. It is not unlike the state of mind in which the original audience of this sermon finds themselves. Hebrews is one long sermon. You think 35 minutes is long. These guys were facing real danger. We think, based on the content, that the audience was largely a Jewish audience, a Jewish believing audience. That is to say, Jews who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ and, and, and by faith recognize that Jesus is in fact the promised Messiah and actually place their faith in him. These are, they're facing real threats. They're facing real danger. They're facing real loss. These are people who by virtue of their, of their profession of faith have lost homes have lost families, have lost livelihoods, have lost position, have lost freedom. Some of them even languishing in prison. Which is not like languishing in five-star prisons like we have today. They were dealing with real fear. Because they know. They are under no illusions as to why this is happening. And so it occurs to them, you know, perhaps a better strategy, perhaps the better part of wisdom, perhaps the greater skill is if we just, you know, return to the faith of our fathers, Judaism, and the practices, the tabernacle, and of Moses. Because that's at least recognized, that's at least ancient, that at least has a place in this world that people understand. Claiming the name of Jesus is new and it seems strange to people. And after all, our profession of faith is Jesus is Lord. That gets us in trouble not only with the Jews, but also with the Romans. Because it's a statement of political insurrection. Following Jesus is so risky. It's just so costly. It seems to invite destruction rather than rescue us from it. Isn't it wiser? Isn't it a more effective strategy just to Return to Judaism and his practices. We'll be safe there. And in fact, won't we be safer there in the world as well as in the presence of God himself? After all, weren't we as Jews God's chosen people? But there's a theme that runs through Hebrews that we won't be able to develop today. And that theme is something like this. The preacher keeps returning to this theme and he is saying, having come to Jesus, having recognized that he in fact is the promised Messiah, 
not just of the Jews, but of the entire world and indeed the entire cosmos. Having come to Jesus and now seeking to turn back from following Jesus in the face of the giants in the land is not unlike what happened in the wilderness on that great day when the spies returned and said, the promise is true. The land is beautiful. The land is bountiful. True. The cities are strong and the people are big. But God has promised. And as they stand to a man, they can look across the boundaries into the promised land and they see that it's true. They see the beauty. They see the bounty. They see the clusters of grapes that are hauled from the promised land as evidence that when our God promises, he fulfills far greater than anyone could think or imagine. And they said, no. The risk of going to the bank on the word of God's promise is too great. We will not go. And so an entire generation perished in the wilderness. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, if you come to Jesus, if you've tasted and seen the goodness of God's promise and the beauty of Jesus, and you turn back, it is the same thing. But we shouldn't judge our brothers and sisters in the faith too quickly. Because isn't it true that at almost every turn in our life, at almost every point that we are come to make a decision, the decision is this. Will we follow Jesus or not? Think, for example, about the idea of loving one another. We love the idea of loving one another. It is so wonderful. I love to dream about loving one another. Don't you? And yet, when push comes to shove, literally, right? When the rubber meets the road, literally. When the rubber is running over top of us in the middle of the road. And loving one another begins to involve a cost to our convenience or perhaps to our reputation, when loving one another involves our egos being hurt and trampled, when loving one another involves a hindrance to our agendas, then we love the beauty of the idea, but we balk at the reality of the idea. It's the same. It's the same pattern. We've tasted and seen the goodness of Jesus, and yet... We shrink back in the face of its cost. Or another one is, what about the idea of forgiving one another? Isn't that a sweet idea? It's really a sweet idea. Until there has been a real offense. Until real damage has been caused to me or to my family. And then we balk at the very, very real risks and the very real costs involved in following Jesus, in forgiving others as he has forgiven us. It doesn't seem reasonable, we think, in light of the dangers and the threats and the risks that loom before us. It is to such a people 
that now the preacher is wrapping up his sermon with this exhortation. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In effect, he is saying, since Jesus, that's the therefore, since Jesus is superior in every way, and since, consequently, Christ's kingdom, that is, the kingdom into which we've been transferred by faith, will endure the present and coming shakeup of your carefully ordered life, as well as the carefully manicured world order of our age. Because Jesus is superior and because his kingdom will endure, you too can and must endure in grace. What does he mean that Christ the King is superior? Well, he has spent the bulk of his message making the case that Christ is superior to Every wisdom, every strategy, every skill that you might think is worthy and able to protect you from the coming danger or from the coming shakeup, to use the language of our passage. And so it's, it's easy for us to think that if angels were to make their appearance here, we can trust angels. Because they're powerful, and they're big, and they're glorious. Images from Disney notwithstanding. And he starts out right from the beginning saying, no. No. Jesus, the Christ, eclipses the wonder of angels. They pale in comparison to the wonders and the glories and the power and the strength of Jesus. Angels, they will fail you. Or perhaps Moses is good enough for our forefathers in the faith. Maybe he's good enough for us. He was a great prophet, perhaps the greatest that ever lived. Moses. Let's go back to Moses. He'll give us the wisdom that we need. Moses has a lot of wisdom. He'll give us the strategies we need. Moses has a lot of wonderful strategies. He'll teach us the skills that we need to survive the coming doomsday. He'll keep us safe. But even Moses... He pales in comparison to the glories of Jesus... Our great prophet, priest, and king. As powerful as he was, he was merely the messenger of the word, and Jesus himself is the word. Maybe it's the law. Let's go back to the law, which resonates with us. Just tell me what to do, pastor. Just tell me what to do. Because doomsday is fast approaching my marriage and my family. Doomsday is fast approaching my career. Just tell me what to do. Perhaps it's the law of Moses. If we just follow it enough. 
But the law, even, is eclipsed by the wonder of Jesus. Maybe it's the tabernacle and the sacrifices. No. Tabernacle and the sacrifices become obsolete in the face of Jesus. For he is the fulfillment, the fullness to overflowing, the pleroma of all of these things that we are talking about. Maybe it's the priesthood. Let's go back to the priests. After all, God himself put them in place. And yet Jesus himself transcends the Levitical priesthood because he is a priest without beginning and without end. Maybe he's even superior to David. You see, the, the preacher has been saying, no, Jesus, Jesus is superior to all of these things. All of these things become obsolete. Jesus is superior in such a way that these things are not rendered worthless. That's not what obsolete means. But rather, they're rendered obsolete in the sense that these things have faithfully served their purpose and now are no longer needed. They have their value. They're good. They're a part of the unfolding plan. They're a necessary part of the unfolding plan. But they have served their purpose. And now, the substance to which we've been moving has come and his name is Jesus. We have many contractors in the congregation and they can tell you better than I, but when pouring concrete in a, in a sidewalk or in a house somewhere, when pouring concrete, we use forms. We build forms and some of these forms are reusable, some are not, but they're all necessary. They're a necessary part of pouring concrete well and they're a valuable part of pouring concrete well. But when the concrete has been poured, when the concrete has been smoothed, when the concrete has been set, we no longer need the forms. And so we remove them. And if they're not removed, we say, well, wait a minute, is the job even done? We remove them and set them aside, not because they're worthless, but because they have already served their purpose in the job. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, the angel's wonderful, the Moses was wonderful, the law is wonderful, the tabernacle's wonderful, the sacrifices are wonderful, the Levitical priests are all wonderful, even David is wonderful. But they've served their purpose. The substance of which has come in the person of Jesus. He is superior in every way. And because Christ, prophet, priest, and king, Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, is superior in every way, we know that his kingdom is superior in every way. Christ and his supreme benefits, you see, are apprehended to us by faith in the same way that we enter into the realm of his reign by faith. And as long as he is the reigning one, the kingdom endures. The implicit message throughout Scripture is if Jesus ever teeters, if Jesus ever topples, if Jesus ever falls from his throne... 
then you are free to pursue another kingdom. But the message of the preacher here is Jesus is supreme in every way. And he does not teeter. He does not totter. He does not topple. And so his kingdom endures. The kingdom in view here is the kingdom to which the heroes of the faith that have just been listed in chapter 11 all looked forward in the same way that now we look backward by faith and even now dwell within the dawning reality of the kingdom by faith. And he says, therefore, let us endure. Let us not shrink back. Let us not neglect such a great salvation. We will endure because his kingdom will endure. We can endure because his kingdom endures. We must endure because his kingdom endures. Endure in what? Look. Therefore, excuse me, verse uh, backing up. The things that cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a kingdom that will endure. That language of be grateful that is written there in the ESV is alternately, can also be translated. Therefore, let us endure in grace. Let us be laying hold of the grace. Let us be abiding in the grace. Let us be continually rooted in the grace there. It seems strange to use that language, and so we want to seize on this language of, of gratitude and gratefulness. But in the ears, in our ears, that means, that for us, that means, oh yeah, thanks Jesus. But when Scripture uses the language of grace, as in this case, It is speaking about the power of God's steadfast love that is being exerted in his world, of which you and I are living evidence. And so the writer is saying, you are here, you are listening to the sermon, you're in this place, you're gathered with this people by God's grace. The power by which the world is created, the power by which the world has been sustained, the power by which now you have been redeemed, the power by which now you are being preserved and made to endure. It's not a matter of mere gratitude. This is a matter of this is the power within which we live and breathe and have our being. Let us endure in the grace that has been so gloriously manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is not an abstract quality, as one theologian writes, but an active, working disposition that manifests in acting for the good of another. It is the acts of God's steadfast love. It is characterized by a countenance of joy and delight and loveliness. So that in the New Testament, when we encounter the word grace as we're encountering it here, it most frequently refers to the greatest act of our Father's great and steadfast love through Jesus Christ. By the Spirit securing and sealing us into Christ to make us fit for unhindered fellowship with the triune God. 
and set as those trained and equipped in the world to affect the praises of the nations. It is the granting of the triune God's very character and very love upon his people. And so it also necessarily involves the sensation that one experiences having received such great love, and thus we speak of gratitude. Thus, because grace is what we call the acts in human history of the triune God's steadfast love, because the superior quality and power and inability of that, and, and ability of that grace is seen most clearly in Jesus, because that grace continues to make itself visible in the reign of Christ through the life and ministry of his gathered people in the world, we must, brothers and sisters, and we can endure. Indeed, we will. What does it mean, does it mean to endure in this grace? Well, it means offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and in awe. Enduring in grace involves our life together of worship. Enduring with one another in a lifestyle that is shaped by and driven by our worship. Did you get that? Because it was underscored <laughs> for you. Pursuing and cultivating a lifestyle together of reverence and awe in our worship. What does that look like? It sounds great. What does it look like? Well, the preacher continues in chapter 13, and he tells us what it looks like. As we endure in this grace with, in, in our life together of reverence and awe and worship, it means we will endure together in our brotherly love, beginning of chapter 13. Not only with those that we happen to like at the moment, not only with those when it's not only with one another when it's convenient, but especially when it is risky. Especially when it is costly. Especially when it requires sacrifice. Because, brothers and sisters, that is the heart. That is the glory of God's great love that has been shown to us in Jesus Christ. That is love. It's not the mere sentiment that our culture celebrates but it is the love that endures in the midst of inconvenience and cost and sacrifice. But it also involves enduring in hospitality for crying out loud, really? It's there. Enduring in hospitality, that is opening our lives, opening our time, opening our space, opening our homes to others. And this says to strangers. Not just to the people you like, not just to the people you want to hang out with at any given moment, but to strangers. Because that's who we are. That's the grace in which we live. The triune God has opened himself to us in great hospitable love and welcomed us in, even while we were strangers, indeed, even while we were enemies. That's biblical hospitality. 
And just a little plug for our women's leadership team, you will be having opportunity this summer to learn how to open your house, to entertain one another, to receive one another, to welcome one another, to celebrate with one another the bounty and the beauty of God's great love for us in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great if we were to welcome faces that we've never met? We can endure in remembering and caring for the absent and the forgotten. In this case, in the passage here, these are people who are in prison. But some of the, the fact is that some of us are imprisoned in our own souls. Some of us are imprisoned in very frail bodies. It is easy to forget those who are out of sight. To overlook the vulnerable. To overlook the marginalized. But we can endure in remembering and looking and paying attention, can't we? Yes, it's costly. Yes, I know, we don't feel like we have time to say hello to one more person and to actually care. But because Christ is superior and his kingdom reign in grace is enduring, we can do it. Because he is doing it to us and in us. We can endure in honoring marriages. We can endure in contentedness. Why can we endure in all of these things? Well, since Christ is superior in every way, and because Christ's kingdom will endure through any shakeup that you can see or imagine, as those hidden in Christ and now citizens of the enduring kingdom, we will endure. We can endure. We must endure. Because the one who calls is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, this is the strategy for surviving doomsday. It's not a hole in the ground. And it's not rows and rows and rows of five-gallon buckets with seed. For since the enduring Christ preserves us together as his church, we can persevere together as brothers and sisters, as his church. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we pray.